1: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Caesar would please like you to drop this line of questioning. (laughs) Thank you.
0: It's been six months since you've set foot outside the palace, the cool marble hallways of home, the scented breezes blowing in from the azure sea. You were born here, you've never lived anywhere else, but this palace doesn't feel like home anymore. There are still the scented gardens, the stunning fountains, the hundred lavish guest rooms, the priceless Persian carpets thick beneath your feet, the armies of servants and slaves there to see to your every need. But the palace is overrun with Romans now, soldiers, stubbornly mortal in the halls of gods and goddesses, tracking dust From their boots all over the carpets. They ruin your gardens with their unsightly barricades. They are an uncouth plague overrunning your home. As much as you hate the soldiers, you need them, because your own city has turned on you. Outside the walls, angry mobs break and reform and hurl themselves against the barricades. They wheel siege engines up the wide avenues of Alexandria. The air is thick with arrows and sling stones. Every morning dawns on more corpses piled high against the barricades. At night, trying to sleep, you hear them shouting through the walls, calling for your Sister's blood. Ah, yes. Your sister. She's in the garden now with the Roman general who swept into this city like he owned it. It didn't take long for Cleopatra to lure him into bed. You've been forced these long months to share a palace with them. You can't round a corner in this place without coming upon them kissing and pawing at each other. Your sister once swore to you that she would put the people first. But now she's in bed with Rome, the enemy. It's the reason the people rebelled. Now you lay awake at night listening to the sounds of battle. Only four feet of marble separate you from the mob, and it occurs to you. It's your sister they're calling for. All your life, the world hailed your sister for her charisma and charm, her silver tongue, her fluency and nine languages. But you're just as charming. You speak all the same languages. You learned at the feet of the same masters. And you're not in bed with Rome. You're the one who should be queen. So you rise from your bed. You dress simply. You go in disguise. It's surprisingly easy to get past the guards. Outside, the people are already awake, gathering strength for the next battle, rallying cries, filling the air. You're not afraid. These are your people and they have no queen now. You will give them what they want. A queen who is theirs alone, who has not sold them to Rome. You gird up your courage and you go out to meet your people. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our
1: last episode, Cleopatra came into the story. We took a little detour to tell you about the Ptolemies, who make the Julian Claudians look like they have their shit together. On that little detour, we learned about Cleopatra's early life. We also talked about the political element in which she swam, taking you from the cutthroat intrigue of the Ptolemaic court to the volatile streets of Alexandria. We talked about her early life, her dad, Aletes, the flute monster, who was renowned for his death flute metal jams. And we also shared you the political powder keg that led to the civil war between Cleopatra and her brother, Ptolemy the a war that first Pompey and then Caesar blundered into.
0: When we ended our last episode, Cleopatra had snuck through enemy lines to surprise Caesar in the palace at Alexandria and plead her case for him to take her side in that war. It went, you could say, really, 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 really well. Because in the space of an evening, Caesar fell into crazy, goofy, can't stop smiling, can't stop bringing this person up in conversation, stupid love with Cleopatra. And when her little brother Ptolemy Thirteenth showed up at the palace the next morning, he was not that pleased of Finder already there.
1: Stacy Schiff says that when he saw his sister already there with Caesar, he stormed out and threw a fall down, kicking and screaming, full on tantrum in the street. His toys were firmly out of his pram.
0: Oh, well, he was definitely throwing his toys out of the pram right then.
1: That's like one of my favorite British expressions, throwing your toys out of the pram. I just love it. Because it's like, we've all been there. We've all done that. I mean, I've definitely <laughs> thrown my toys out of the pram. Frequently in recording this podcast, one of us throws our toys out of the pram.
0: One of us gets pushed to our limit every time. (laughs)
1: For maybe the first five minutes of his relationship with Cleopatra, Caesar tried to play it cool. He announced his decision to reinstate Ptolemy and Cleopatra as joint rulers. But this was not good enough for Ptolemy's advisors. First, militarily, because they were the ones with the upper hand. Why did they have to share? And second, because they'd gone to all that work to kill Uncle Pompey. That was supposed to have made Caesar an ally.
0: Yeah, because what Caesar's doing is just basically reinstating the status quo that they had just tried to upend. Also, we killed your enemy for you.
1: Like, don't you understand? We want to be friends and she didn't do any of the hard work. And oh my God, just because she's pretty and young and hot doesn't mean that you should side
0: with her. We are so much better. They sent him a gift basket. (laughs) There was nothing in the gift basket except Pompey's severed head and his severed hand. And that was not a good enough gift basket for Julius Caesar. You know why?
1: good Cheetos every time maybe some Prosecco
0: they didn't have access to Cheetos and Prosecco John. this is the ancient world they should have tried just some summer sausages and some fancy cheeses sent that to Julius Caesar maybe it would have worked I'm just saying oh I love that you think they
1: had summer sausages and fancy cheeses (laughs) oh
0: well you think they have Prosecco and Cheetos so I don't know (laughs) And
1: we quit the podcast.
0: (laughs) We quit. How many episodes in are we? Like 20? Oh, I think we're over 30 now. Wow, that's a lot of episodes. What are we doing with our time? What is this? The Advisor Faction... Led by
1: Pothianos, the prime minister started working to undermine Caesar at every turn. Behind Caesar's back, he whipped up the Alexandrian mob and summoned the Egyptian general Achilles back to Alexandria with his army. Achilles had about 20,000 men, mainly made up of leftover Gabinian troops and escaped slaves from Rome. Meanwhile, inside the palace, Pothianos set about making himself as obnoxious to Caesar as possible because that's a good strategy.
0: I see nothing wrong with this plan. I've got so many thoughts. Don't poke the bear with a stick, Pothienos. He's in your palace already. Like, velvet gloves here. I mean, you would think.
1: But he clearly
0: did not read the commentaries. Pothenos did not read the commentaries
1: like everybody in the ancient world except Cleopatra. Caesar put all his plans out there and it's like, nobody reads them. I guess nobody reads them.
0: I just like, well, I told you guys this is how I work. Everyone keeps being surprised that suddenly they have a Caesar problem, right where they should expect having a Caesar problem. Exactly.
1: Caesar's like, I literally published my own propaganda. I showed you exactly how
0: I work, exactly what I do, and none of you bothered to read it. He definitely made sure that the commentaries were around for people to read, so... It's the library at Alexandria. They had to have the commentaries in there somewhere. Cleopatra could get her hand on it. Maybe Pothienos could borrow it from her.
1: Let's get back to Pothienos. Pothienos ordered suppers to be served on earthenware and wooden dishes, claiming loudly that Caesar had made off with all the silver and gold plate to collect payment on those debts. Caesar, why? No, now we all have to eat on earthenware. And wooden plates, like, just common people. I mean, what is this? This is not how you treat living gods and rulers. And I can just imagine the common people, like, rolling their eyes at him and being like, we hate you.
0: The angry mob's eyes were rolled so far back in their heads that they were looking at their own brains right now. (laughs) This
1: is not endearing you to us at all, actually. When Caesar asked for grain to feed his soldiers, Pothianus made sure that they got the moldiest grain. And he said they better not complain since they were eating grain that belonged to other people.
0: Eat your molded grain and like it.
1: At least we're feeding you.
0: Caesar had a bad feeling about this guy from the first. Caesar was generally not a big drinker, but it's said that he took to staying up late and drinking with his troops all night purely for self-protection so he'd be surrounded by his troops all the time. And he started sleeping at weird hours to keep his movements from being too predictable. Cleopatra was probably taking similar precautions and no doubt she was the one who tipped Caesar off that Pothinus was dangerous. But then when a slave overheard Pothinus plotting to assassinate Caesar, the gloves were off. Caesar had Poth- Pothienos executed without batting an eyelash, which is why you don't feed moldy grain to Caesar's troops, Pothenos. Anyone could tell you this. Anyone could tell you this, including in your own time, because anyone who reads the commentaries knows how this dude operates. But by now, Achilles was bearing down on Alexandria with 20,000 troops, mostly ex-Roman soldiers from the Gabinius days who'd stayed in Egypt, taken on Egyptian customs, married Egyptian women, and had children with them. The Gabinians were dads. Oh, they bet they had a terrible army of Dad jokes. They were a public menace and also dad jokes.
1: (laughs) All the dad jokes.
0: Hold up. Caesar has something to tell us about the Gavinians, Jen. Quote, They would demand the king's favorites be put to death, pillage the properties of the rich to increase their pay, invade the king's palace, banish some from the kingdom, and recall others from exile. These had resorted Ptolemy the father to his kingdom, tortured and killed Roman diplomats, he's talking about the sons of Bibulus, and had been engaged in war with the Egyptians. So those are some of the things the Gabinians did. He doesn't mention the dad jokes. That doesn't mean there weren't dad jokes. There was definitely dad jokes. I'm just telling you. There were some terrible puns. Dad jokes aplenty and also (laughs) storming the palace. You just never know. Both are equally menacing. All right. (laughs) Back to our story, Caesar had about
1: 4,000 soldiers with him. His troops were outnumbered five to one, and those troops were exhausted from their prior battles and in no shape for a pitched battle in the streets. Caesar saw that shit was dire, so he sent two messengers to Achilles to negotiate for peace. Achilles was not, and this is, again, a move right out of Caesar's playbook. It's in the commentaries. Go to that library, read the scroll.
0: If Caesar's sending you messengers to ask for peace, it's probably because he knows you have the stronger position, but it's also a stalling tactic. He's doing something behind your back to fuck you up while you take this time to deal with this peace messenger. Exactly.
1: Achilles was not having any of this bullshit. He had the messengers killed before they could open their mouths. I
0: mean, maybe Achilles did read the commentaries. Poor
1: messengers. Now Caesar has 3,998
0: soldiers. <laughs> he just lost two. <laughs> he can't afford to lose any. (laughs) Oh, man. He's in a bad position here. I think it's going to get worse. Your spidey senses are tingling, aren't they? Achilles'
1: army poured into Alexandria, occupying almost all of the city except for the royal palace. Incidentally, the palace actually was an entire neighborhood. There was an area called the royal quarter in Alexandria that faced the sea, where each successive Ptolemaic pharaoh had built their own palace because there was the tradition that each pharaoh would build their own palace rather than living in the last pharaoh's palace, which seems kind of wasteful, but what do I know?
0: I mean, yet another reason for the angry mobs, right? There's a famine on, but the pharaoh has to have their own palace. Well, yeah, they couldn't just redecorate. Nope.
1: Caesar's troops now transformed the palace neighborhood into an impromptu fort, building hasty fortifications, including a trench and a 10-foot tall wall. Achilles immediately called in reinforcements from every corner of the country and set up munitions factories throughout the city. Wealthier Alexandrians supplied slaves for the war effort, swelling Achilles'
2: army.
0: Vicious fighting erupted in the streets. Caesar's troops set fire to whole neighborhoods and the fire spread to the great library of Alexandria. No! Yeah, all those books, Jen. Is this when it burned
1: properly or was this just one of the times it was on fire?
0: This is just one of the times and from what I understand this was not a complete and total burning. There was still quite a bit of the library of Alexandria left over but the fire did get to the library and that is not cool. That is not cool. I am not happy with you, Achilles. I bet Cleopatra was pissed because she cared about her books. She really did. Caesar sent out for supplies, but Achilles locked down the town, stopping any messages from getting in or out and ambushing Caesar's supply trains. Caesar was trapped in the palace. He had the royals, Cleopatra, Ptolemy, and another royal sister, Arsinoe, in his custody. Achilles had everything else, including the food, the water, more troops, and the support of the populace and basically the whole entire country. Caesar paraded the young Ptolemy on the walls, showing him off to the public so they could see he was unharmed, and coaching the boy to plead with the crowd for peace. But the public was not in a listening mood. They suspected Caesar was behind this message because the Alexandrian angry mob was the smartest, toughest, and most dangerous angry mob Caesar had yet met. They rioted, and Caesar had to pull the prince and go back to hiding behind the palace walls.
1: Most ancient accounts of the time focus on what Caesar was doing during the Alexandrian war because he was the one ostensibly leading the fighting, and because we get most of the details from. Um, the commentaries, where Caesar talks about himself in the third person because Caesar knows how Caesar would tell this story. And Caesar will tell you this story of how great Caesar is.
0: It's a story about Caesar's story
1: about Caesar. Told from the point of view of Caesar. Caesar. Written from the pen. Of Caesar. 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 But Cleopatra had to have been heavily involved in the strategy. She was the one who knew these people, and Caesar would have relied on her knowledge of the psychology and mindset of his foe. And Cleopatra knew that being a Ptolemaic queen meant raising and leading armies. She'd already raised her own army of mercenaries. No doubt she would have played an active role in the strategy and learned everything she could from Caesar. So this was Caesar and Cleopatra's first date barricaded for months together in this palace with an angry mob outside backed by a professional army called in from all corners of Cleopatra's country. If they broke through the barricade, it was a given that the angry mob would rip them limb from limb.
0: They were planning it. They had elaborate limb ripping plans. They did. They really were like, you know what?
1: It's been a while since we ripped someone limb from limb. No one's killed a cat in a while. We've already thrown Cleopatra out once. Let's make it 2-0. It's time for some good old fashioned limb ripping. Outside was chaos. Whole neighborhoods were on fire and the air was thick with slingstones and spears. They were besieged and there was death metal flute music and it was just a whole hot mess. They were playing the greatest hits.
0: They were definitely playing the greatest hits on a loudspeaker. Death metal flute music just pouring through the loudspeakers. It
1: just never ended. The only people who were enjoying themselves were Caesar and Cleopatra because they were banging through the death metal flute music. Everyone else was like, oh God, not this again. I can't sleep.
0: Flute monster greatest hits just on repeat. You were like, God, dad, even from beyond. All right. You know what? aletes is dead, but the flute monster lives on. It rages on. Flute monster rages on. <laughs> but inside
1: the barricaded walls of the palace compound, Caesar and Cleopatra lived in luxury. Marble and precious stones and metals and opulent fabrics were everywhere. The absolute best and most expensive of everything. There were extravagant scented gardens, columned walkways, a theater, ornate fountains, ancient Egyptian statuary, rich Persian carpets, priceless art, colorful murals made of precious gems. Every available surface would have been elaborately tiled and decorated. Stacy Schiff, tells us that there were over a hundred bedrooms in the royal palace there would have been servants too, an army of people there to make sure that Caesar and Cleopatra stayed very very comfortable it must have been the most intense time Cleopatra and Caesar locked together in an opulent palace with the enemy at the gates swoon
0: I am so swooning right now it's like a romance novel I mean, it is. But also, like, from a
1: practical level, like, I would be terrified all the time. That's what makes it exciting, Jen. I guess so. I'm kind of boring guys. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so what makes the sex so good.
1: And you just know that they were having all the sex everywhere in that palace. And all a hundred of the guest bedrooms. <laughs> but also, like, you're in the middle of this siege. And, like, they're just in that stage of, like, getting together where they just want to, like, kiss and be a, that annoying couple where you're like, oh, God, please stop. In three months time when you've broken up and you talk to me about everything, I'm just going to be like, I can't unsee this. I hate you both.
0: They're a totally annoying PDA couple and they're just banging on every available surface in this fancy palace. Like if you're anybody else in the palace with Caesar and Cleopatra, it's like, oh man, they're at it again. I just like rounded a corner and there they are. Oh, they're in the fountain this time. Oh man. Don't go in the fountains, you guys, without protection. And here's where we have to stop and just laugh at this whole situation because Caesar did not have to fight this fight, right? Like he didn't have to do this. It would have made a lot of sense to decide in favor of her brother who'd signaled his support by sending him Poppy's head. He sent him a gift basket and granted this might not be the Gift basket you would pick out for yourself, but it is the thought that counts. Is it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I have to say this, like, yes, Pompey was Caesar's enemy. And yes, Caesar had just defeated him. And obviously, like, eventually Caesar was going to have to get rid of Pompey. But the way in which Ptolemy and his advisors chose to do this really sent a message about how they felt about the people who support them by beheading Pompey and not even letting him get on the beach. was kind of saying, like, look, we are here for whoever the winner is in Rome. And the problem with that is they're not honoring the arrangements and the treaties they'd had before. Yes, if they'd raised an army and Caesar had to go and defeat them, that would be a problem. But this also sent another message. We're fair weather allies. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to say, I guess. To be fair, I don't think they could win in this situation. If they hadn't killed Pompey, then Caesar would have been annoyed anyway. I guess the only way they could have won is if they'd held him like as a hostage until Caesar got there.
0: My perspective is that that's not necessarily better for Pompey because who knows what Caesar's going to do to him. Well,
1: that would have put Pompey be in a bad situation, but turning him over to Caesar would be like, Look, this is a Roman problem. We are not taking sides. We are neutral. You sort yourselves out. That was one way they could have done it. It really was a lose lose for them. Whatever they did had bad ramifications.
0: Anyway, the whole point is that this is completely unnecessary, this whole war. Since Ptolemy's side had the better army, it would have been a lot less of an uphill battle for Caesar to side with Ptolemy, get his money back, make sure the area was stable, and move on. Like, that's how he does this quickly by siding with Ptolemy. But no, he didn't because Caesar. Caesar was infatuated. We've already shown you that Caesar liked smart, sophisticated, educated women, but Cleopatra was actually kind of out of his league.
1: Yes, she was.
0: You could definitely make the argument that Cleopatra was not so infatuated and was just being totally calculating and seducing him. I mean, she was 31 years younger than Caesar was. Well, she was 31 years younger,
1: but she needed
0: him. Right. She was the one who needed Caesar's support, which is kind of my point. Like, she needed to have him on side. She was going to do anything she had to do. We don't don't have a record of how she felt about him in her own words, and we actually don't have a record of how Caesar felt in his own words either because he barely mentions Cleopatra in the commentaries, but I think it's very clear how he felt. Plus, another huge draw for Caesar was that Cleopatra was very, very rich and he had an army to pay.
1: Listen, Caesar would like you to know that Caesar was not having a good time in that siege in Alexandria.
0: Oh, wait, is this Caesar
1: talking? This is Caesar talking. Caesar would like you to know that regardless of the opulence that Caesar was forced to endure, regardless of the beautiful woman that was Cleopatra, Caesar was not enjoying the divine pleasures of the flesh with her. He was having a miserable time while he was besieged in Alexandria with all that wealth around him. I'm sure, Caesar. Caesar thinks he senses a little bit of sarcasm. Sarcasm is a very low form of wit. Caesar thinks you can do better.
0: I I literally cannot do better than sarcasm-free right now, Caesar.
1: (laughs) Caesar says please contact him when you can elevate your game.
0: (laughs) I'm not Caesar's type.
1: I'm way too lowbrow. Well, let's be honest, neither am I. (laughs) no doubt Cleopatra and Caesar were a super obnoxious PDA couple. And not everyone was okay with that. Cleopatra was losing her populist cachet now that she was in bed with Rome. And now is a good time to talk about the other people who were in that love shack baby.
0: There are other people stuck in the love shack with Cleopatra and Caesar. And those were Cleopatra's siblings. <laughs> Would you want to be stuck in a love shack with your sibling and their new babe?
1: Let's be real. This is an awful awful fucking time for them
0: in a siege unable to leave like oh it's getting sweaty in that love
1: shack they will not stop every time you sit down to eat they're like giggling and pawing at each other and you're like can i be excused to eat in my bedroom and they're like no you can't because we haven't done it in your bedroom yet so we're going there after dinner like you guys are putting me off my food they had to christen every room in the palace jenny like that's how caesar marked his territory oh by banging in it yeah well mark anthony puked in it <laughs> and caesar banged in it <laughs> Oh my god, that's so,
0: that's basically a great sum up of their personalities.
1: We haven't got to Mark Antony puking in the Senate yet, but we will. We will. That's how he marked his territory. He barfed on things. (laughs) And Caesar banged in it. That's why, like, all the, like, upper class patricians hated Caesar, because he was banging all their wives, and now he owned their houses.
0: He was christening everybody's house.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: You couldn't sit down in the palace in Alexandria on a surface that Cleopatra and Caesar had not banged on. Most likely. I mean, this is all speculation. We cannot back this up with any
1: fact. But! But if we ever unearth the ruins, and we can get some ancient DNA tested
0: or some luminal, I think we'll the luminal. know. <laughs> I think we know what happened there we will definitely see some butt marks on that marble
1: <laughs> there's a butt groove that he wore in <laughs> i mean let's be honest what else did they have to do and from cleopatra's perspective like the most important thing for her was kind of to get pregnant with julius caesar's baby so now he's really invested in this dynasty and in this city
0: so getting pregnant would be like a strategy for her and she's definitely going for that goal 100 <laughs> like percent. yeah now. he's in his 50s so it might
1: take a little while
0: julius caesar still has that magic d It's still fully functional. And
1: now that you've left me in an awkward position, let's turn to everyone else in an awkward position. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Cleopatra was not the only Ptolemy sibling barricaded in the sweaty, stanky love shack with Caesar. There were also two little Ptolemies and Cleopatra's younger sister, Assinuae. And when we say little Ptolemies, we don't mean the family. We mean two brothers named Ptolemy. Yeah, they were both
0: named Ptolemy. There was, I'm 11, although I think actually he's about 13 now. 13 He's aged (laughs) up a little bit. And then there's another one. There's Ptolemy the Fourteenth, who doesn't really do much in this episode, but he's there. So there was the two Ptolemies and there was a Sinoe. Arsinoe is about 15 at this point.
1: Yeah, she's about 15 and she's like, I have the same education as my sister. I think I can handle this situation better, mostly because I'm not obsessed with banging Caesar. Arsinoe, no doubt, did not like having to watch Cleopatra and Caesar making out in the stanky pleasure gardens because everything now is stanky. Frolicking naked in the fountains and basically getting it on in every available surface in the palace because Cleopatra had a mission. And Caesar was like, okay. (laughs) He was down to clown." (laughs) these two were so down to clown right now so arsinoe did not want to watch this shit and also like there's people outside my people who i could be governing at some point she must have thought you know what i'm the only ptolemy sister not in bed with rome at this moment
0: i'm the one who should be queen there's definitely like a gap in the market for a ptolemy ruler who's not in bed with rome
1: That's a great selling point, Arsinoe. I think you are right. I think you are making a good judgment call. Cleopatra is really in bed with Rome, and Ptolemy the 13th has killed Uncle Pompey and said, Okay, Rome, let's be friends. Sent the wrong gift basket. Sent the wrong gift basket. But like he is still aligned with Rome. It's only sort of Arsinoe, the younger sister, who's like, you know what? There's a gap in the market. I've got the skill set. Let's take this to the streets. And so she does. So Arsinoe snuck out.
2: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was
1: dangerous, but uh,
2: danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello everyone, it's Takuya here. And I'm Gabby.
2: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?
1: As soon as she was free of the palace, Arsinoe started rallying the people to her, and soon the people of Alexandria had declared her queen. At first, her plan was to work with Achilles to drive Caesar out, but the two had some kind of disagreement. The details are murky here, and Arsinoe had Achilles assassinated. Good for you. I don't know why I'm cheering her on. I don't know what the details were. She might have been a total jerk.
0: I mean, there's a hint that she might have been because the people eventually wanted to hand her back, but they're also sexist, so it could have been that.
1: Anyway, then Arsinoe took control of the army herself. And that's when things got really bad for Caesar.
0: Arsinoe seized control of the canals that brought water to the city of Alexandria, She immediately had her army flood the cisterns and pipes that supplied the palace with salt water, poisoning Caesar's water supply. Now he was out of water and food. Inside the palace, Caesar's legions panicked because having no food is bad, but having no water is really, 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 really bad. Is it bad? Julius Caesar would like you to know that having no water is really, really, really bad.
1: Uh, You can't contact Julius Caesar right now. (laughs) You have not upped your game yet. Oh, that's right. You're the only one who can contact Julius Caesar. Yeah, I'm not sure he's pleased that I do it. I just sort of don't ask for permission. Actually, I think he likes that. (laughs) He
0: likes out of your
1: jib, Julius Caesar thinks I'm a war elephant.
0: As long as you frenzy in the right direction, which is not towards him, war
1: elephant's gonna war elephant. I'm in a frenzy where I'm in a frenzy.
0: That's true. I know this about you. With his <laughs> troops on the verge of deserting because having no water is really, really bad,
1: and because Julius Caesar's troops are always on the verge of deserting,
0: he knows them so well. Though he knows exactly what to say to like get them back. Are the tenth there? Probably not, because he only had like a legion with him at this point. Not even that. He had like three three thousand 3,998 guys. I think a legion is 5,000. I could be wrong on that, though. So anyway, I'm trying to tell you a story. With his troops on the verge of deserting, Caesar had to calm everybody down. He reassured them that there had to be a vein of fresh water nearby as these normally occurred near oceans. All they had to do was find it. I mean, that's really smart, actually. How did he know that? I didn't know that. I mean, I grew up on an island. I knew that. <laughs> you knew that? I didn't know that. If I didn't know that, then it is not something people know. <laughs> There's an underground water table, so you have to
1: be able to go down far enough to get fresh water up. Also, I mean, just look for where things are green. If things are green, there must be an underground source of water somewhere.
0: Oh, see, this is why you have this connection to Julius Caesar, because you both know about the underground vein of fresh water. It's just a sign that your game is up. I'm too sarcastic. Well, I'm not constantly making jokes about him banging. Oh, you participated in that. I don't even (laughs) want to hear it. That was 50% you. Um, So the Legionaries dug all night, finally locating the vein of fresh water in the limestone under the city right where Caesar said it would be. Caesar ordered his soldiers to build wells. Just last year, while Caesar and Pompey were fighting, Cleopatra had sent Pompey a fleet of 50 warships, mighty triremes and quadriremes and quintremes, just all the reams. And now, as war raged in Alexandria, the ships sailed home to harbor. Pompey never even got a chance to use them.
1: Both Cleopatra and Arsinoe wanted those ships, and the fighting in the harbor was vicious. Caesar didn't have enough men to command those warships on his own, but he could not let them fall into enemy hands. If he did, his enemy would control The whole harbor, locking him in and keeping him from getting supplies or reinforcements. If he lost those warships, he lost the war. Caesar and his legions fought a desperate battle in smaller boats in and among the giant warships that floated in the harbor, fighting fiercely to keep the Alexandrians from boarding them. Finally, seeing that all was almost lost, Caesar ordered his legions to set fire to the warships. A great blaze enveloped the harbor.
0: Meanwhile, every man, woman, and child had mobilized in Alexandria to fight against Caesar— At stake for them was their freedom and autonomy. They knew that if they lost to Caesar now, they'd be a Roman province by the time the war was over. The Alexandrians, ordinary Egyptian people, not even the professional soldiers, proved to be one of the most determined and ingenious enemies Caesar had ever faced. They raised 40-foot barricades that cut across whole neighborhoods. The entire city transformed itself into a war zone and everyone at every level participated in the war. From the palace walls, Cleopatra watched her own people build 10-story siege towers and wheel them up the city's flat, straight roads to the palace neighborhood. Caesar's troops destroyed the Egyptian navy, and overnight, the Egyptians built a new navy, transforming warships that had lain for years collecting dust in the city shipyards, pulling down immense beams from the roofs of public buildings to make masts and oars. The next day's dawn broke on a new fleet of warships bobbing in the harbor, ready to do battle. One
1: of Caesar's goals was to gain a foothold on the island of Pharos, on which stood the great 350 foot tall lighthouse of Alexandria, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The lighthouse had stood on that island in the Alexandrian harbor for more than 300 years, with an immense bonfire kept constantly burning at the top. At this point in history, it was the tallest man-made structure in the world. Menelaus was said to have washed up on the shores of Pharos on his return from Troy. In the Odyssey, Homer describes, quote, An island out in the ocean's heavy surge, well off the Egyptian coast. They call it Pharos. There's a snug harbor there, good landing beach, where crews pull in, draw water from the dark wells, and then push their vessels off for passage out. Supposedly, a prophet once lived in the caves there with a bunch of seals. And I mean, we got an Odyssey and an Iliad reference! Yes!
0: We did! So... Yeah, the island of pharaohs, I don't believe it exists anymore. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. Anyway, a few things to notice about this passage. First, the wildness of the sea. And second, the snug harbor. Pharaohs had a small, deep, narrow cut of a harbor, Impossible to enter without a fight if those who held the island didn't want you to land. In Caesar's time, Pharos was connected to the mainland by a mile-long causeway. There was a small village on Pharos. Whenever passing ships were driven onto the island by the rough seas, the villagers plundered the ships, except when they got plundered by people on the ships, which also happened, so there was a bunch of mutual plundering going on on this island periodically. Caesar managed to seize part of the island and killed all the inhabitants of the village for some reason asshole move. This enraged the Egyptians on the mainland. They rushed the causeway. Caesar's Roman troops tried to hold the island, but eventually they were routed and had to flee back to their ships in a panic. Caesar tried to stop the unchecked flight of his own troops, but he was quickly overwhelmed and soon he was forced to flee with them. But his boat was capsized by panicked soldiers and Caesar fell into the sea wearing a heavy purple cloak and armor as the Egyptians pelted him with rocks, which I just love. I love that. This is
1: why Caesar will not talk to you.
0: (laughs) I'm not sufficient adulatory towards him. He's getting pelted by rocks. He's wearing heavy clothes. His boat just tipped over. Shit is not going well. This is not a good day for Caesar. Everything is not
1: coming up Caesar.
0: Definitely not. Caesar almost drowned. He had to strip off his armor and cloak and swim desperately to the... This is why Caesar won't talk to me. He had to strip off his armor and cloak and swim desperately to a boat in the middle of the bay. Dio tells us that he had some papers in his hand, which he held above the water the whole time. And I gotta say, what were these papers, Jen? I thought this was like a... X-rated send nudes letter from Cleopatra to Caesar. Unless, unless it's still Servilia asking for those nudes. It could be. It could be that one message got through the blockade, and it was Servilia. X-rated send nudes. It would be Servilia. Let's be honest. I know. I could totally see that happening. Caesar's just amassing his collection of nudes. This is just wrong. (laughs) We need to stop down the
1: nudes aisle. It's consensual. Again, this is why Caesar is not talking to you. (laughs) Caesar would like you to know that these papers were of a personal nature. They are not for speculation in the future. If Caesar wanted you to know what was in these papers, he would have put them in the commentaries, but Caesar declined to include them. Please kindly move along.
0: I bet he, like, occasionally drew pictures of his penis and sent them to people he was sleeping with so they don't forget about the magic date. (laughs)
1: Caesar does not see the need to have his personal business flashed about the commentaries. The commentaries are a teaching tool for those who need to know what Caesar was up to and how to best engage him in warfare. Caesar would please like you to drop this line of questioning.
0: I feel like Caesar has pre-recorded all of these responses. (laughs) Look, Caesar, if you're not going to show up to your own seance, then don't bother, okay?
1: Caesar would like you to know that you have significantly failed to up your game.
0: You will not be able to
1: contact (laughs) Caesar for another two months. (laughs) Caesar will be watching Game of Thrones and looking at how they did not learn from the commentaries. Oh, Caesar. He's gone, Jenny.
0: (laughs) Caesar keeps trying not to talk to me and it doesn't click
1: that well. I know. He just every once in a while is like, oh, I gotta correct you again.
0: Anyway, we have more to tell you about Caesar. Here's a little detour about the commentaries. Oh! The commentaries are back in the
1: picture. Surprise, surprise.
0: The commentaries are not my primary source for a lot of the episodes that happen after Gaul. The good thing about the commentaries for the Alexandrian War is it gives you a lot of the specific nitty-gritty details about what the actual war was and the battle maneuvers and stuff. So you get that from there, but like other stuff you can get from other places. The interesting thing about the commentaries is that Caesar kept writing them while he was barricaded in Cleopatra's love shack when he was not, you know, having wild sex and every available surface or fighting off the angry mob. So he had time to write the commentaries too. But it actually breaks off in the middle of the war, like right when Arsinoe sneaks out. So if you read the commentaries and you get to the end of it, it's quite possible what you're reading was practically written in real time, which is really rare for the ancient world and really cool.
1: Caesar suffered his biggest loss that day, the day he almost drowned. Over 800 men were lost. The Egyptian crowd took Caesar's cloak and paraded it around the city like a trophy. Meanwhile, the battle raged on, in the marshes outside the city, along the banks and tributaries of the Nile, along the harbor, and in the streets of the city itself. The people of Alexandria had been united in their opposition to Caesar. But it turned out they weren't 100% Team Arsinoe either. Months into the war, a delegation of Egyptians came to Caesar, begging him to release their king. Ptolemy the 13th to them. They were sick of Arsinoe's bullshit, or maybe they just didn't like being ruled by a woman. Who knows? It's very murky. So they agreed to trade one royal sibling for another. And Caesar was like, Yeah, I agree to this bargain.
0: And Ptolemy the 13th was like, I'm 11. I'm 11. I can do this.
1: Although he was actually probably 13.
0: He was just a little kid, is what you have to remember here. Exactly.
1: When Caesar told Ptolemy that it was time for him to go, it said the boy burst into tears and begged Caesar not to send him away. He was just a little kid and he didn't know what was going to happen and his sister went out there and now they didn't want a sister and he doesn't really know what's going on and this is scary.
0: Probably Caesar was nice to him so he was probably like, well, I guess you're my friend now and he's, he's a little kid and he's not. Like some kids, you see some kids being super, super precocious when they're thrust into these situations in the ancient world and Ptolemy was not one of those kids.
1: No, I mean, Ptolemy just wanted to play his Xbox and just have people advise him and enjoy the trappings of wells. He didn't want to be caught up in a civil war. He didn't want to have to deal with all this stuff with Rome. He just wanted to like have a chill life. I can't blame him. That's what I'd want. I mean, I don't know that that's what he wanted. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe he was quite bloodthirsty. I don't know.
0: I don't think so. I mean, I think the signs will point to he was a little kid way out of his depths.
1: Absolutely. Caesar, unmoved, told the boy to try and win the populace over to the Roman side. This war wasn't in the best interest of his people, after all, and remember, his friendship was with Rome and with Caesar. Don't forget Caesar.
0: Don't forget Caesar. It's all about Caesar.
1: Then he sent Ptolemy out to his public. The minute Ptolemy set foot outside the palace, he completely forgot about his friendship with Rome and began encouraging his people and troops to further violence. Apparently, Caesar's officers and soldiers rolled their eyes at this. They were exasperated by what they saw as Caesar's baffling niceness. They did not get why Caesar had to be so merciful all the time.
0: Yeah, they were really pissed off that Caesar didn't just gank this kid, I guess. But Ptolemy didn't have a lot of time to raise trouble. Reinforcements were on the way, led by Mithridates of Pergamum, not that Mithridates, different Mithridates. The uh, Mithridates that Pompey fought was dead. This was a multicultural contingent of Roman allies, including Jewish, Arab, and Syrian soldiers. Ptolemy's army met them at the Nile Delta as they tried to cross the maze-like system of waterways, and Caesar managed to sail around to intercept the Egyptian forces. He arrived at dawn, taking the Egyptians by surprise, and the fighting was fierce. This time, the Egyptians were the ones to flee. Overcome with terror, some hurled themselves off the walls of the fortress of Pelusium and into the ditches below. Ptolemy drowned trying to cross the Nile. I'm 13. Aww. <laughs> Was One, Caesar rode back into the city to be met by a very different crowd. The people who fought him so fiercely threw down their weapons, dressed themselves in humble garb, brought out their sacred statues and objects, and surrendered to Caesar. After the war, everyone expected Caesar to make Egypt an Egyptian province. If he had, he would have seized immense wealth and a whole new grain supply for Rome. But that's not what he did. Instead, he installed Cleopatra on the throne and let her keep her kingdom because he was in love. He was in love. To assuage the Alexandrian public, who was sexist and did not want to be ruled by a woman alone, he also arranged for her to marry, quote unquote, her surviving brother. He was 12 years old. This was little Rickon, like Ptolemy 14th, who, Kind of didn't do much but he was stuck in the palace too. He
1: didn't do much. He was around, but disappears and then conveniently reappears.
0: For plot. He's hiding in the palace while his sister and her 50-year-old boyfriend are banging everywhere, trying to just stay out of the trouble. I don't blame you, Ptolemy Fourteenth. I was like, I just don't want anything to do with this. This was a marriage in name only. Cleopatra and Caesar were now inseparable, partying together until daybreak and in each other's beds at every opportunity. The PDA was just up to 11 here. Caesar should have left at this point, But he stayed at Cleopatra's side for another three months, just drinking his Gatorade and powering through it and utilizing his magic
1: tea. Caesar does not see why Caesar should have to pick between having the divine pleasures of the flesh with the Lady Cleopatra, now Queen, Empress of the Nile, and ruling in Rome. Caesar will return to the Roman people when Caesar is ready to. Caesar has to celebrate the victories in Egypt.
0: I thought that Caesar wasn't enjoying the godly pleasures of the flesh with Cleopatra. I thought that was a point we made earlier on. Is Caesar contradicting Caesar's
1: self or what? <laughs> Caesar is telling the story the way Caesar would like it to be told. If you have a problem with the way Caesar tells a story, please refrain from contacting Caesar in the great beyond. I just think Caesar might be talking out of Caesar's ass at the moment. Caesar will not speak to you. You have not up your game sufficiently. Please do not try and engage Caesar.
0: Caesar tells me that he's never going to talk to me again, and yet Caesar continues to talk to me.
1: You have to have the last word every single time, Jenny! You can never not have the last word! You can't just let Caesar burn you and stop talking! I mean, Caesar picked the wrong fight with the wrong person. <laughs> We've got two people have to have the last word. Caesar's gone. He's like, whatever.
0: I'm done with you. <laughs>
1: He's mad at me. He said I'm not allowed to talk to him now. And I really wanted
0: to talk about the Battle of Winterfell. You're the worst, Jenny. You know what? You can call him later when we're off the podcast. No, he said he's not talking to me for two weeks. He said he's not talking to me for two months. So I guess you got off better than I did. Caesar hates us both now.
1: (laughs) I mean, you could be polite. We're not going to get any guests onto this podcast if you keep treating them this way, living or dead.
0: Look, Jen, I mean, whoever you decide to contact from the beyond and bring onto the podcast, like, that's at their own risk. Except Kukulin. Kukulin just Kukulin. Kukulin doesn't give a shit. I was pretty nice to Kukulin, though. Well, that's because
1: you fell in love with him because of his deep warp spasm voice. (laughs) I know. I was into Kukulin. Caesar
0: Caesar's just too much of a deal. Well, he... He's not talking to either of us, so he doesn't care what you say. Whatever. Caesar can't stay away from us. This won't last long.
1: Well, we'll see. (laughs) He hasn't talked to us before. This is the first time he's talked to us.
0: I do feel like, you know, our policy for bringing guests onto the podcast. I should try to be on my best behavior, but sometimes I get provoked.
1: I mean, it's hard not to be provoked by a genocidal maniac who's talking about a sex life. (laughs) (laughs) And who cannot stop talking in the third person. Anyway, let's finish this episode. Cleopatra took Caesar on a cruise down the Nile to Upper Egypt, the part of the country looked down on as a backwater by the Macedonian Greek upper class, where the locals still adored her. It was a land of incredible, awe-inspiring sights. Caesar would have seen the pyramids, the temples of Memphis, the world's largest oasis, spectacular purple-red sunsets and sunrises, the singing colossi of Memnon. It would have been a stunning display of pageantry. More than 400 vessels accompanied the queen on her trip. Cleopatra and Caesar sailed on a massive pleasure barge that had been built during the reign of Ptolemy IV about 250 years ago and still seaworthy.
0: They built it right back then, okay? They valued craftsmanship. Exactly. It was a 300 foot long floating luxury
1: palace, complete with multiple lavish dining and staterooms, religious shrines, and two levels of decks.
0: There were hot tubs on this thing. There was a gambling casino. There were so many
1: cocktails.
0: So, so many cocktails. I love how the cocktails come
1: up. They do. There were so many drinks with frilly umbrellas and little plastic elephant figures. It was great.
0: Yes. They were drinking and banging and just having a great time and looking at the Sites...
1: I mean, they deserve this. They just
0: won back Alexandria.
1: And, you know, what better way to tell the people they're not going to, like, ignore them and rule in opulence and not pay attention to their needs than by floating down to them in a pleasure barge. I see nothing wrong with this plan. Caesar, understandably, didn't want to leave. And Cleopatra didn't want to let him go. It said he would have sailed with her all the way to Ethiopia if his troops hadn't nearly mutinied at the prospect. Because if Caesar's troops aren't nearly mutinying, he's not living his life right.
0: I mean, if Caesar's troops aren't nearly mutinying. It's clearly not Julius Caesar we're talking about here. But the
1: thing was, everyone in Rome was wondering where the hell Caesar was. He'd won his own civil war, then disappeared for 10 months, and they'd had no word from him. And as we all know at this point, that was really out of character. Caesar never stopped writing letters, even throughout his campaigns in Gaul, Spain, and Greece. He wrote to everyone, friends, lovers, family members, and enemies. But while he was with Cleopatra, Caesar had gone dark. You could just hear those crickets.
0: Jen, does Caesar
1: want to tell us why? I'm just getting an out-of-order message and the connection. He's just mad at you. He said he's going to go and relax and watch Game of Thrones in a couple hours and maybe eat a little feast, drink a little wine, have a 3 way with Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. He's done.
0: I don't need to know about Caesar's three ways. Well, I'm just telling you what he's told me. Well, Caesar can suck it. <laughs> So, <laughs> Caesar
1: will not suck it he's not interested
0: <laughs> whatever Caesar I know you don't give oral of course you don't <laughs> only receives oh this is why you have not upped your game <laughs> <laughs> I need to nod up my game and i will continue to nod up my game if caesar says much like a magic evil, i'm not favorable <laughs> try again later whatever caesar's totally telling you that in person because he can't resist <laughs> look if i
1: disclose my sources then they would not be my sources anymore it's
0: like i'm never going to be able to get guests on this podcast <laughs> because jenny will not control her. except because Cucullin loves me. Cucullin does love you. Oh,
1: hi, (laughs) Cucullin. Hi, I'm totally glad I'm in this episode.
0: Cucullin rules. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) Cucullin's awesome. How's the head cleft? Cucullin, get lost. You're not in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, Julius Caesar refuses to come by and tell us why he was really stuck in Alexandria the whole time. It was not because of the godly pleasures of the flesh, but he's not going to tell us about that in person. So we have to resort to the commentaries. And in the commentaries, what does it say in the commentaries, Jen? So in the
1: commentaries, Julius Caesar explained why he'd stuck around Alexandria and why he couldn't leave. This is a shitty reason. I'm just letting you know now. If you wanted to come back and give us a different reason, it would be better than me reading this. We're going to give him a minute? No? Okay. He said he'd been, quote, detained against his will by the Etesian winds, which are totally unfavorable to persons on a voyage from Alexandria.
0: I mean, what? See, I told you, you should have come back, man. Did anybody buy that back in Rome? Well, Cicero didn't. (laughs) I mean, Cicero. (laughs) Nobody bought that, I bet. Anyway, nothing good can ever stay. Eventually, after three months, Caesar cut his halcyon cruise with Cleopatra short and headed back to Rome. He had an empire to rule and enemies to neutralize. Leaving Rome unattended this long was strategically dangerous. It gave his enemies time to regroup. Caesar had to know that. And Cato was still out there with the remains of Pompey's legions, still burning with a white-hot hatred for Caesar. Still barefoot, still in a stinky toga. Caesar left Cleopatra with 12,000 legionaries for her own protection. Although I don't know where he got 12,000 of them because he did not have that many when he got there. Well, yeah, but he had the triremes. But I don't think he had enough people to sail. Th- I, You know what?
1: I... He didn't have enough people to sail them, but there must have been people on there to sail them. So he probably annexed those troops.
0: Oh, that's a good point because they had to have been sailed back to Egypt somehow by somebody. They didn't just go on autopilot. Were
1: they robot robots? <laughs> Maybe they're
0: robot robots.
1: See? It's really difficult when you say it like that.
0: So somehow, 12,000 legionaries. And he took her sister, Arsinoe, with him as a war prisoner. No doubt Cleopatra and Caesar made passionate promises to meet again. I'll see you very, very soon, babe. Mwah, 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 mwah. <coughs> Two weeks after he left, Cleopatra gave birth to a son she named Ptolemy the Fifteenth Caesar. Everyone called him Caesarion, or Little Caesar.
1: That's it for this week. Tune in in two weeks for the next installment in this series. And in the meantime, connect with us on social, on Twitter at ancienthistfan, or on Facebook and Instagram at Fangirl.
0: And check out our Patreon. This is a great way to support the podcast. I think we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, and it is worth mentioning again. Right now, our expenses for this podcast, hosting, SoundCloud, sound engineering, research materials, other stuff, they come out of pocket and they add up surprisingly fast. The bigger the podcast gets, the more expenses there are. And we're not sure how long we can keep this up. So we really appreciate your support in helping keep the podcast going by supporting us through our Patreon. And one of the things that we do when we have a Patreon supporter is we shout them out in the episode and we have a new Patreon member to thank, Elizabeth Daniel. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. And if you want to support the podcast, but don't want to commit to a Patreon, head over to our Ko-Fi account and toss us a few bucks or leave us a nice review. We've been getting some really, really nice reviews and it really does warm our withered frozen hearts. Is that even a thing, a withered frozen heart? It, It warms our stony little hearts. It warms our stony little hearts and it keeps us going. And to be honest, it's so incredible when we get reviews and reviews on a practical level, help us move up in the algorithms and get seen by more people and grow the podcast and hopefully eventually help us get sponsors and more patrons. Every little bit helps. Thank you guys so much.
0: Thank you so much.